turn together to the book of Genesis, chapter 2. This morning we will be looking at the last section, verses 18 through 25. So we continue to go through the book of Genesis and this series of foundational principles and events and doctrines. Creation, the creation of man, the Lord's Day and rest. And now here this morning, marriage. Let's look now at God's Word, beginning at verse 18. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's Holy Word. It is inerrant, it is sufficient, and it is authoritative. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock, and to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called. Woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you would teach us from your word, that you would teach us not only what we are to know, but how we are to live, how we apply your truth and your commands to our lives, O Lord. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, when we speak of marriage, there are images that come To your mind. Aren't there? For many of you, ladies, you can recall back to when you were very young. And when you thought about what your dress would look like. And I know, guys, it's hard to believe even what the centerpieces on the tables would be like. What kind of foods you would have and what music they would play. This is the sort of thing that begins with little girls. They do, and as they grow older, they have that view. And unfortunately, I think, sometimes that view of the perfect wedding becomes our view of marriage. For men, it's a bit different. We all know the male jokester who refers to marriage as the old ball and chain. That's about as accurate as thinking 
that a marriage will be like a wedding ceremony. Some of us think about marriage and we think about the white picket fence and the home that we will have and the family that we will live in. Too often in our society, marriage is viewed as a kind of a partnership, a contract, a, an almost a business transaction. But none of these things are what marriage is. Because God tells us here in Genesis chapter 2 what marriage is, and He tells us because He is the one who invented it. He has every right to declare it to be exactly as He desires. Because He has provided it to man and woman. And so this morning I would like us to see three things about marriage from our text. The first thing we will see is the necessity of marriage. That marriage is not something that was an add-on to the world. It was in God's divine plan because it was necessary. And secondly, we will see that when something is necessary that God provides for it, we will see the provision of marriage by the Lord. And then finally, we will see a pattern of marriage. A pattern that is divine and that helps us in our witness to the world. Necessity, provision, and a pattern. Let's begin then by looking at the necessity of marriage. And we see this first because it is recognized in creation. Now, we need to remember here, to go back just a little bit, man's purpose in the world. If you look back just a bit with me to chapter 1 and verse 28, you will see that God has given man a mandate, a purpose in life. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. So part of man's purpose is to reproduce. And to reproduce in a way that is glorious to God. Not just replacing himself on the earth. We hear a lot about that kind of statistic. That we need to have, what is it lately, 2.2 children per family in order to have a replacement birth rate. No, God says, no, be fruitful. Multiply. Fill the earth. And in doing so, you will take dominion. Fill the earth and subdue it. and Have dominion over the fish and over the beasts. This is what God has given. And he reiterates this again in chapter 2, verse 15. He tells them that he is to be in the garden and he is to work it and keep it. God's purpose for man is that man would be fruitful and multiply. Now, why do we talk about this? It's because what we see in verse 18 is, is a bit shocking without that context. Because verse 18 says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. Now, this is shocking because what we have seen all throughout the past is it was good. And God said it was good. And it was good. And God looked and saw that it was very good. Now here God is saying all of a sudden that something is not good. And unless we remember that context, we think that God has made a mistake, that somehow the creator of the universe is standing apart from his creation, smacking his forehead. Oh, I so forgot to set Adam up. Well, I can take care of that now. 
No. God has intended that Adam and his wife would be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And what God is doing here is pausing between the creation of the man and the woman and telling every single one of us that that is not a good place to stop. He makes this very clear for us. It's shocking because of the repetition of the goodness, but you also need to understand. You see, we think maybe it's not good to be alone because there's a lot of work to be done around the house and we need help. Or we don't know everything and we need someone to bounce ideas off of. But you see, Adam was created in a perfect state, with no sin, in a perfect world. The environment that Adam had was absolutely perfect. So we cannot say that it is not good that man be alone because he needs help in a world that is hard. No. It is not good for man to be alone in a perfect world. What God is saying to us is that we need companionship. This is why one of the the great Outgrowths of the Reformation was a move away from monasteries. From Christians hiding themselves up in a hole. Keeping vows of silence away from society lest they be tainted by it. God says we need to have relationships. This is not an option. If you think you can go it alone, that you don't need anyone, that you can come and go as you please, God tells you now today you are wrong. It's one of the reasons why we are so insistent and so encouraging that church is a place of fellowship and relationship. It is not simply a place where you come, put in a quarter, or with inflation, a buck, get some knowledge dispensed to you, and then leave. We were made, God says, for companionship. Because you see, when God says it is not good that the man should be alone, this word has the idea of it is not good that man should be in solitude. He shouldn't be separate from others. Complete solitude is not good. Man should not be lonely. But he should also not be alone. We are meant to cooperate. And Moses tells us this when he describes what God said. He says, I will make for him, that is the man, a helper fit for him. We are not meant to work alone. Let me say this very clearly. Even if you can do the job all by yourself, you're not meant to. Part of having relationship, part of being a man, a woman, a person, is cooperating with others. And that's what God provides here for the man, a helper. Now, lest we get the wrong idea about this, God is not creating some kind of lesser role for the lady so that she can walk two steps behind and to the left. She's not some sort of junior assistant, to use the term from films of old. She's not a girl Friday who's meant to just simply come when the fingers are snapped. How do we know this? Is it because society has educated us about the value of women and equality of rights and the ERA movement? Hardly. 
It's because this word in the Hebrew for helper is a word that most often is used not of women, not of men, but of God. It's describing God as the helper of man. You remember that famous verse in Psalm 121, I lift up my eyes to the hills, from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Same word, help, helper. The woman is to be, or shall we say at this stage, the helper is to be one who is corresponding to the man, who is equal. There is dignity in this role. It is a picture of divine help. And God recognizes that the man needs this. And then God does what he so often does in his grace to us. He not only knows that something is the case, he shows us that it is as well. And so not only is it recognized that there is a necessity for marriage in creation, but God then begins to demonstrate this necessity to Adam. He says that it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And then he does something to make it very clear for Adam that he needs this help. He puts Adam to his first job. And job number one for Adam is to have every one of the animals, from the aardvark to the zebra, come up to Adam. You can almost imagine it in your mind's eye. As Adam stands and the animals in their pristine state are surrounding him and they come down the aisle, as it were. And Adam looks at them and he says, Chicken. And he looks again and he says, Fish. Bug. And so on and so on. And I think, we think there's a bit of humor about this, but... Think of the creativity that Adam has in this. He looks at these animals and he decides what their name is to be based on their ability, based on what they look like and their natural gifts that God has given to them. So Adam is a man who is brilliant. We need to remember this before the fall. Adam makes every philosopher that the world has ever known look like a dunce. He's brilliant. And he names all of these animals and they come in pairs, one after the other, after the other, after the other. Now, one of the things that Adam should be noticing as he looks out here is he says, wait a minute. Um, there are two aardvarks. Two cats. Two monkeys. Two horses. Where's the other me? There's two of all of them. Where's the me? And as they all come up, he notices a second thing. Well, that's a dog, but the dog isn't like me. I said dog, and he didn't say, good job, Adam. I said monkey, and he didn't say, thank you very much, sir. They're not like me. God, where's the other half of me? You know, there's an old joke that I read in a commentary this week where someone asks someone else, what is most like half of the moon? 
And then the response is, well, I don't know, a wheel of cheese or an orange or um, a cracker or this or that. And you know what the answer is? The other half of the moon. You see, there is nothing here like Adam. God does this deliberately in the midst of all of this naming. Part of this is God slowly teaching Adam that what he needs is a companion. He needs another half. And this is important for us to remember because the primary reason for marriage is companionship. There are false views out there today. There are some that view the primary reason for marriage as procreation. Having children. Now that's certainly a great part of marriage. But it's not the primary reason. There are others that view the primary reason for marriage as being satisfaction for yourself. That I know that my needs will be met. No. The primary reason for marriage, God tells us here from the very beginning, in sinless perfection, is companionship. And so, Adam sees all of these animals, they come to him, and he becomes more and more aware that he is alone. Now, this need for companionship is something that we have today. But there's a problem that this text needs to fix for us. The modern problem is that we are becoming more and more numb to that need. That more and more we push off that need. We don't think marriage is necessary. You see it in the modern prototype of the self-sufficient woman who doesn't need a man to take care of her. She's perfectly fine as she goes to college and to graduate school and starts a career, and puts off marriage for years and years and years, and then wonders why she's not able to have the children she can have in her late 30s. Or she puts off marriage altogether. Today in America, more than 50% of all births to women under 30 are to unwed mothers. More than 50%. And these, beloved people, are not accidents. These are women who decide that they want children but don't want marriage. But there is a sense in which, can you blame them? Because like in all things, men are to take the leadership because there's another problem here. We have the problem of the modern boy man. The man who doesn't think about marriage who doesn't plan for marriage, who doesn't prepare for marriage. He is a boy in a man-sized skin. And he is perfectly fine with staying up watching a big flat-screen TV and playing video games and going out with the guys. It doesn't see any need for marriage or companionship or children. And this is a frightening reality that the church faces Listen to this statistic from a book called Church Planter. The boy man may be a frightening reality in the church, but he is the best thing that ever happened to the video game industry. Almost half, that is 48%, of American males between the ages of 18 to 34 play video games every day. 
for at least three hours. The average video game buyer is 37. In 2005, 95% of computer game buyers and 84% of console game buyers were over the age of 18. Astonishingly, 75% of American heads of households play computer and video games. Now, is the solution to this a law that I give you that you thou shalt never play video games again? No. Truth be told, or as my children be told, I play video games occasionally. But the point is, if you are pushing away commitments for own self-pleasure, own self-preoccupation, you are not following God's mandate for your life. And I'm speaking specifically now to young men. I'm not telling you to run out and get married in 15 minutes. But I wouldn't think it would be a bad thing if you ran out and in 15 minutes started to prepare for getting married. That might begin with your education. It might begin with your commitments. It might begin with the way you treat your sisters, the way you treat your mother, the way you treat your aunts, the way you treat your sisters in Christ. This is a very big problem in our society today. And the problem is even bigger because the church is asleep at the switch on this. Well, if marriage is a necessary thing, then what happens? How do we then solve this problem? Well, we don't. God does. God does in the provision of marriage. God provides for Adam. Now, notice what happens here. Adam sees all of these animals, none of them are a helper fit for him. See that in verse 20. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him, suitable for him, parallel to him. So the Lord God said to Adam, Go west, young man, and find a helper that will work for you, and give me a call when you've done so. Now, that's not what my translation says either. No, what my translation says is, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs, and he fashioned it into the woman. Now notice here, Adam is not sent out to do this task. God is completely in charge, and God puts Adam into a deep sleep. Why does he do this? Well, some would say, well, I'm sure taking a rib out would be painful. And God puts Adam in a sleep state so that he won't be hurt and he will recover more quickly. I don't think that's the primary reason. I think that this is the only and best way that God ensures that there is no way that Adam will take any credit at all for Eve. Where were you, Adam, when I formed Eve? You were knocked out cold. You were in a deep sleep. I took care of all of this. You can't take any credit. Because Adam might be tempted to take credit here. But God instead is in complete control and he makes this rib into the woman. Do you see that in verse 22? He made into a woman this rib. Now the word here, made, I want you to think it's related. I want you to think of an architect. This is God acting as the architect. He is building not just something functional, that is, 
a helper fit for Adam. He is making and building something of beauty and worth and dignity. God is taking his time here. He is fashioning the woman. It's interesting, you know the old nursery rhyme about what boys and girls are made from, but that's not true, but it is true that Eve is the only creature not made from the earth. Do you see that? All of the animals are made from the earth. Adam is made from the dust of the ground, but Eve is made from the flesh of Adam. And God makes her as a master craftsman and brings her before Adam. And this is where I think our wedding analogy helps. The closest earthly thing I think we can get to God bringing Eve to Adam is when that father of the groom, with the glint in his eye, walks down the aisle and the preacher says, Who gives this woman? He says, I do. Her mother and I do. The veil is lifted. Everyone sees the stunning beauty of the bride. Right? That's what's happening here. God, men, has blessed you. He didn't give you a helper that might be somewhat useful. You know, a man can have companionship with a dog. But there's a problem. He can only have companionship on the level of dogness. The dog can't come up to the man. But in creating the woman... God gives a helper, a companion that is perfectly suited to the man. And think about this too, ladies. You were created to be perfectly suited to the man. God has given you a perfect companion. You were meant by divine design to seek the man, to love him, to labor alongside him. To be blessed with him. This is God's provision for marriage. One final note about this part. You'll notice what is not mentioned here. There's no mention of childbearing. Not that the command to be fruitful and multiply is not still in effect. But the woman is given to the man not simply to be the mother of his children. Not simply so that he might have progeny, a legacy. No, the woman is given to the man to be his companion. We must banish all pagan notions. Do you know Aristotle was convinced that women were defective men? They were men that something happened in in birth or in the procreation process that somehow women were a bit defective. And do you know his reason for this? Well, of course, a woman couldn't possibly be a tolerable companion for a man. Those are pagan notions. Now, I'm not telling you, gentlemen, that you can never go out and play pool with the guys. Or go to a football game. But the woman is the true divine companion for the man. God provides for marriage, and then he also establishes this marriage. He establishes a oneness There is a oneness that is created between the woman and there is a special foundation that God lays to solve Adam's problem. And we see this here 
verse 24. Moses breaks back in after Adam's little speech, and he says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. You see, the therefore there tells us that all of society is the way it is because of what God has done. God has intended to provide a mutual service and obedience to himself through the woman and the man. This is the way society is because God has created it to be so. And Adam recognizes this. Now, some of the translations, mine here happens to have Adam's words in verse 23, set apart in what looks like verse or poetry. And that's because this is the first place where this kind of poetry occurs, human poetry. He says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Now, this is a little bit of Bible translation. Because what you really need to hear at the beginning of this statement is Adam's wonderful theological summation of the creative creative work of God. Adam looks at the woman and he says, Wow! Wow! At last! I had all of these animals come. And now, finally, wow! God! You see, he's pretty happy about this. And, and you can imagine why. If he thought that, you know, he would have as his helper um, Lassie or Fido or Felix the Cat, you know. But now, he says, look at this, Lord, look what you have done. What a blessing that you have given to me. And, and he sees that now his other half of the moon is there. And we see this in English, and it's also true in the Hebrew. Have you ever wondered why there's this relationship between man and woman? It's the same in the Hebrew. It's ish for the man and ishah for the woman, which means out of the man. There is this relationship, and Adam sees it, and he is floored by it. Would that the church would be today. We are not sinless as Adam was. But we are redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, and we will have an estate that is beyond Adam's in glory. Would that we would see God's creative work and see that marriage is good And that husbands and wives are good for each other and good for children and good for the church and good for society. Because I will tell you, beloved, our our nation is doing everything it can to destroy marriage. And the church must stand and say, this is what God has decreed and it is very good. It's not a temporary fix. This takes us then... To our third point, this pattern of marriage. This pattern of marriage that is seen in the divine and is seen in the blessing it gives. Adam, of course, is very excited. You can imagine then that Eve is excited as well because, well, the the Lord is a good matchmaker here. This guy's yelling. He's pretty good here. He's a leader. He's strong. He's brilliant. The animals obey him. I want to serve the Lord with him. And God provides then this pattern of marriage of the family 
He provides marriage as the basis for the family. The family is bigger than marriage, but marriage is the foundation of the family. And that's why we see here in verse 24, Moses uses actually a bit of hyperbole. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother. And, and the language here is, is a little bit over the top. Shall be completely separate from, shall separate out from, go away from. Now, that was not Hebrew custom when you would probably have parents and children and grandparents and a couple of aunts and uncles and cousins all living in the equivalent of a one-room studio apartment in Israel. But Moses wants to make the point here that says, this is why a man and a woman form their own unit They're not responsible to answer to parents. Advice is one thing, but they are their own family. And they are to hold fast to one another, to be inseparable. You know, it's become almost completely trite to hear at weddings, till death do us part. Maybe we ought to start adding till death, or low income, or arguments, or move, or a better job offer, or someone prettier comes along, do us part. Because that's the state of where we are today in the world, and quite frankly, in the church as well. The statistics all show that divorce in the church is nearly statistically identical to divorce in society. It's because we've lost this idea of holding fast, of clinging. And you, beloved, who know this, You must show this to your children. You must show this to your grandchildren. You must show this to your neighbors. That through thick and thin, plenty and want, sickness and health, that God has designed marriage and companionship to be a blessing to each other, to society, to the whole world. This pattern of marriage is that we are to be one flesh, Moses says in verse 24. And this union is a union not just of body. Young people, trust me. I'm a pastor. I've done weddings. After a wedding, they do not fuse the left hand of the lady to the right hand of the man. You do not become that kind of physically attached. But there is a unity both of body and of spirit and of soul. By that I mean there is a union of intellect, a union of emotions. We are drawn together. What do you expect from marriage? You see, I think we cast off this idea of unity and union because of false expectations. You know what women expect a husband to be? That somehow they should be able to order up to God, can you please send me Um, one part James Bond, one part Jay Leno, one part that nice sensitive guy from the fiction book I'm reading. Mix that up. That's who I want. But men are the same way. Well, here, you know what I need, Lord, is I need one part Sophia Loren. And let's throw in some June Cleaver and Betty Crocker. That's what I want. 
But you see, what that is all about is what I want and what I think. And you see, what God wants is us to have soulmates. Really, soulmates. Not that there's only one person somewhere out there in the world that you have to find. But once you have married someone, once God has brought you together, you then become soulmates. You share intellect. You share dreams. You share hopes. You share emotions. And you see, what happens in that is what happens at the end of this chapter where they were naked before each other, before God, and before themselves, and they were unashamed. Do you know what the opposite of being ashamed is? In the Hebrew here, it's not being confident. It's trusting. Ladies, do you trust your husband? Do you trust him with your greatest fears? Do you trust him to take care of you at all times? Men, do you trust your wives? Do you trust them enough to seek their opinion? Do you trust them enough to find value in them? Do you trust them to give you advice and support and hope? This is what marriage is about. And you see, in the midst of all of this, society is attacking marriage. We have attacks from hedonism. That all we are to do is to worry about our own pleasure. We have attacks with widespread adultery in the world. We have attacks with how easy it is to get a divorce. One of the worst things that has ever happened in America was the creation of no-fault divorce. It used to be if you were in a miserable marriage, it was really hard to get out. Now it's really easy. This is an attack. But it's also an attack from the state that seeks to redefine marriage. Now it is not just the union of a man and a wife. Soon it may be the marriage, a union of three people or four people. And I say without joking that we could be in a place some years from now where the beasts will enter into marriage. You'll marry your dog or your cat. You won't just say they're like my kids. You'll marry them. Because society has become unmoored from God's word. Once you leave God's word, there's no place to stop. We must stay there. And so that tells us that this divine design for marriage is a blessing to us. So what is the solution? I am here to declare to you boldly this morning that the solution is not just more laws and lawsuits. I am not saying we should not fight wickedness in the civil realm. We should. But that is not the solution in and of itself. We do not say that marriage is necessary because it is part of the bedrock of society. Or because it is better for the children. Or because it builds stronger families. No, marriage is to be preserved because it is God's holy, inerrant word for his creation. That is why it is to be preserved. And only by obeying God's word can we preserve marriage. And the only way that we can obey God's word is because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, marriage needs the gospel. Marriage needs the gospel to survive. The only way a man and a woman can live together in those close of quarters is if they are good forgivers and good repenters. And they seek the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Only Christians can break the selfishness of heart that seizes people. Only Christians can have proper service toward each other that Paul calls us to in Ephesians 5. Only Christians can display God's glory in marriage as He's manifested it to be. God did not stumble on marriage as a good illustration of Jesus and the church. God created marriage to be an illustration of Jesus and the church. And so in your marriages, you can glorify the Lord Jesus. Well, in conclusion, what do we think here? From this text, we know a few things. That man needs woman. There's no doubt about it. It's not good that he's alone. That man is the head of the household. He is the one that does the naming here in this text. He calls her woman. But that the two complement each other and are equal. That this union is an exclusive one. But most importantly, that this union of marriage is a pattern of blessing and glory and grace. Is that how you see your marriage? To me, it's a lot prettier than a wedding dress. A lot finer than a white picket fence. It is God's intention for all of His creation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You that You have indeed blessed us with the institution of marriage. We pray, O Lord, that You would make us faithful husbands and wives that you would make us faithful children, that we would look upon our parents and seek to have children of our own that would glorify you. Lord, please display your glory in us, that we might continue to be your ambassadors in a lost and dying world. We ask all of this through Jesus' name. Amen.